Hey everyone, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Last time out, you heard us discuss neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, that is, the inability of the liberal establishment to accept, explain, and respond to contemporary changes and challenges. As we discussed, this speaks to some of liberalism's deeper contradictions, to liberals' inability to realize liberalism, to their ambivalent attitude to democracy. Today we're going deeper on the same question, deeper into the history of ideas. We're going to be discussing the work of the recently deceased Italian Marxist Domenico Losurdo, and in particular his brilliant liberalism, A Counter-History, which came out in 2011. This work seeks to counter the usual hagiography you find in histories of liberalism. Instead, it sets up key liberal thinkers from the 17th to the 20th centuries, and examines how they often, counter to reputation, defended the worst barbarism, from slavery to colonialism to racism, taking in a range of elitist anti-democratic positions along the way. We hope to keep this accessible, with the aim of adding to our ongoing discussion about liberalism's contradictions, and with how those universalist ideals might be realized today, in spite of actually existing liberals. All right, so this is Alex Hochuli here. I'm in Sao Paulo with Ben Fogel. And in England, we've got George Hoare and Phil Cunliffe, as per usual. Uh, now I'm going to hand over to Ben, because Ben's going to tell us, uh, to start off a little bit about Domenico Lasordo and introduce the topics that we're talking about today. So Domenico Lasordo, uh, who recently passed away, uh, is perhaps one of the most influential uh, Marxist thinkers in Italy. He left a legacy, particularly as a philosopher, even if his work really went beyond the traditional disciplinary board boundaries of uh, academia, transcending artificial separations between history, politics, and philosophy, and really embodying a sort of dialectical spirit and a historical materialism that really took the Marxism seriously as an approach that goes beyond sort of traditional academics distinctions. More so than that, he was also a political militant, a lifelong political militant. He already got his start in the 1960s in the Italian Maoist movement, and to an extent, this would uh, characterize his politics from this moment onwards. He later got involved in the Italian Communist Party in the 80s and was part of several attempts to refound the Communist Party uh, after it fell apart in the early 90s and rebranded itself as the Democratic Party, which if you're interested in, you can check our wonderful episode with David Broder where we break this all down for you. But anyway, uh, he really represents a sort of rare intellectual figure in, I would say, the Anglophone Academy in that he was a sort of unabashed Marxist-Leninist. He wasn't ashamed of his tradition. He was willing to defend elements of the Soviet Union. He was willing to defend China and he was really willing to go after the totalitarian label really attached to these projects in mainstream liberalism. He was critical of uh, such uh, Marxist trends, trends in the academy as Western Marxism. And also, he's best known for uh, not just his study of liberalism, which we're discussing today, but he really his sort of uh, deep and radical uh, engagements with key philosoph philosophers of the right, such as Nietzsche, Heidegger, 
and others, as well as his recent works on uh, Stalin and the critique of historical revisionism. But anyway, uh, he left a towering legacy, which is only just coming to be known by English readers as Verso in particular, as well as Brill begins to translate ma- m- uh, many of his works, which there are dozens of, into English. His best known are probably Liberalism and Counter History, which we're discussing today, and War and Revolution, which uh, was published a few years ago, which we might uh, refer to later in the podcast. So let's 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 bring into discussion about what this book actually is it's quite a hefty volume uh it's liberalism a counter history and uh in this book uh i really think and i would like to hear everyone else's uh view on these aims what he really seeks to go is he seeks to uh he seeks to rectify a hagiography of liberalism that is dominant in uh Western thought that presents liberalism as this force rising for human emancipation, uh, freedom and uh, enlightenment and progress. He seeks to counterpose a different narrative which uh, identifies liberalism with some of the more disturbing and uh, dark moments of the last 200 years. I would like to hear uh, how you guys see this as a uh, goal of the book. Do you think uh, this is a fair characterization? Do you think that uh, there's something more going on? Is, do you think there's something particularly about the approach he utilizes? I mean, just as a sort of starter for 10, what I found really interesting was the way, I guess the, the, the real kernel of the liberalism counter-history book is that he talks about the dual, the twin birth of slavery and liberalism, that this is a sort of paradox at the heart of liberalism, that liberalism and slavery really are born into the world at the same time. Yes, slavery exists in other forms, but the sort of the form of chattel slavery in the new world that existed um, in the kind of early modern period is something that rises with liberalism and they're inextricably linked. And that's fascinating. Um, and I, to, to, to refer to your question about kind of how you write this sort of history, what is interesting is that Lucerto attacks the idea that slavery was just sort of the background music of the time and that you had liberalism and that was a good thing and liberalism was progressing and yeah you had slavery but that would eventually go away it would eventually be be sort of um, worked through and wiped out in the course of historical development and he goes no no it's liberalism which in part creates this Certainly. I mean, I think you have to look at this uh, this history in which uh, chattel slavery and what's the so-called second slavery where you see the organization of slavery on a sort of mass industrial scale and the real expansion of the global s- slave trade and the real expansion in the productive capacities of the slave trade you see during the height of liberalism. You see the boom of the cotton industry in the United States and the sugar industry in Brazil during this liberal period. It's not something which uh, was going away. It was remarkably successful as an economic project until the Civil War. It wasn't something which was necessarily outphased by the triumphant forces of the market. I suppose that I wanted just to go back to the question of um, counter-history because it's an interesting, it's the subtitle of the book and it's an interesting idea um, because it suggests, so he's saying that there is a histor- history out there with its, which is effectively a hagiography, which is um, with its kind of blind spots, misconceptions, ideological predilections and so on. And he, in offering a counter-history, is offering something which is very explicitly um, self-consciously stylized so as to be opposed to that history that's out there. 
Um, but it strikes me, I mean, then, you know, it's it's designed in such a way to counter the existing history. But that suggests and draws attention to the fact that it's um, by its nature one-sided, right? Deliberately so. It's a count. You can't, you know, a counter history is obviously not a history, right? So the suggestion I think would be, or the suggestion that I take from the label of counter history is that the history is still waiting, in a sense, to be written. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I I think actually, when you read it, it's quite striking how he uses the words of all these key liberal thinkers, and it it kind of reminded me a bit of the first volume of Capital, where Marx is saying, well, if you take them. If you take liberalism and liberal political economy, in the case of capital, at its word, what what do you create, or what what kind of mental or, or what kind of intellectual picture of of economics do you create? And and with Lacerdo's book, I think it's it's a good read because you you kind of get this whistle stop tour through all these classic liberal thinkers. And maybe you're right to a certain extent, Phil, that the history isn't there. But I think it's quite striking how he says, well, okay, let's take the ideas of the absolute preeminence of individual liberty, anti-statism and individualism. And even if those things, even if liberalism lives up to its its greatest thinkers, then how can this other side of it, this counter history still be still be part of what these claims are um, in terms of the, you know, the, these key liberal thinkers? So with that in mind, we have now established the sort of aims and uh, approach that the book takes. Let's discuss the historical periodization of the book and the narrative it conveys. Well, I mean, I guess for the benefit of listeners who aren't familiar with the sort of core historical narrative of the book, what it basically tells is the story um, of, by which um, the American colonists at the time of the American Revolution and, and leading up to that made arguments for freedom, for political freedom, no taxation without representation, and so on. The, there were arguments for political freedom for um, the absence of domination from uh, a monarchical um, colonialist regime, right? So it's the, the standard arguments for American freedom. Um, but well, at the, at the same time, those contained within them a defense of slavery. As the as time progresses and we get into the 19th century, you find arguments from the Confederacy, which seem to take on similar forms to the 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 arguments made in the North against Britain. So then the American South starts to argue against the North. We also want freedom from domination. We want freedom from political domination, and we want to be able to run our business as we see fit, uh, to put it in the base, more most basic terms possible. Which again contained the the right to own slavery own slaves so as we follow that argument through we see the ways in which the argument for um, against political domination always contains an argument for the right for political for domination within civil society so i might be free from rule like from arbitrary rule by the king but that means that i can at the same time do what i see fit within my household or plantation which means owning slaves I think the other thing that this conveys in this narrative, which is extremely important to this to this book and this project, I think of Lesotho in general, and the sort of what he calls radicalism, and which we can associate today with Marxism and socialism, which is that uh, crucial to the expansion of franchise or classic imaginary ideas of liberal freedom, whether it's emancipation of slavery, the extension of suffrage, the gra- the granting of rights to People excluded from right uh, from uh, the political political sphere has been one off the back of popular struggle of 
radicals outside of the liberal tradition pushing the liberal tradition rather than the enlightened elites of liberalism making uh, nice arguments that convince everyone and moving forward because as he shows many of these key thinkers were more than willing to uh, defend forms of domination and oppression if uh, it suited their conception of freedom and this goes throughout figures associated with the right, such as Edmund Burke, which he argues is a classical liberal, to figures more associated with sort of more egalitarian variants of liberalism, such as John Stuart Mill. And I think uh, Locke gets a particular, uh, particularly close uh, examination. Gets a bit of a kicking context, and yeah, I, that's exactly what I was going to say because he he perfectly represents this this paradox or this um, this contradiction, um, and and his thought, as Lacerdo outlines. Is re- really shows that you can at one and the same time precisely it seemingly divorce that necessity for freedom from an arbitrary state and then the freedom to do various things in the in the in the private sphere. So, so it's, it's quite striking. So George, can you just like uh, break down just so for the unfamiliar, who exactly it was John Locke and why he is so important both in liberal <laughs> thought and this book in thirty seconds? Here goes now. You got a PhD in political thought. That's oh my. That's yeah, but that's a long time ago, and that's. Uh, that I got the PhD and also. What do you mean, seventeenth century? Um, yeah, well, <laughs> um, but actually, I think my the the point that I'd never really previously considered that Lasordo makes um, with reference to Locke is that that the the conception of slavery changed with as liberalism developed, and this is something which I'd never really previously considered is the effect of liberalism on conceptions of slavery, because you see in Locke and particularly in later thinkers how. Slavery changes from being a, a kind of an not a relation of equality, obviously, but not a relation of pure ownership. And it requires the liberal idea of, of the split between the public and the private and the liberal idea of the self to completely just um, exclude slaves. And it's really, I yeah, think it it's interesting. Yeah, it polarizes. Yeah, that, that polarization isn't, isn't there in, in Grotius or any of these previous thinkers who predate Locke. And he's kind of at that at that saddle point or at that changing point where you see this this perfection of, of a certain sort of liberalism which also leads to perfection of a certain sort of slavery and obviously perfection used in massive inverted commas in the second second use yeah the there. sharp the sharp polarization the i mean the paradox being that the clearer the con- the concept of um liberal freedom the more um the more sharply contrasted with the more perfect state of slavery um, mm. perfect in the sense of a purer, more purely kind of essential uh, defining quality and the, the hardness of the barrier between the two. Uh, one thing that's good in Lacerda is the contrast between um, historical pre-modern visions of slavery, at least in the Western world, where he talks about effectively there was social mobility with slavery, at least in the Roman world, where there was expectation that um, you would receive, you you would probably be emancipated or at least that your children would likely be freed, um, whereas that became increasingly difficult. That racial slavery became so quintessentially defining of um, liberalism in a mm. way that was entirely foreign to the ancient world. So, just to really bring this into, into uh, frame, let's let's actually just explain. John Locke 
is a, a very important 17th century uh, British thinker who's considered the first sort of major theorist of modern liberalism and the separation of the state from civil society, the market from the state, and uh, individual liberty from uh, collective domination through the state. And very importantly for the story, and this makes a nice transition to this subject we've already been talking about, which is the relation between liberalism and slavery. Interesting enough, Jean Locke authored South Carolina, a slave state's constitution, which does feature in the book. And uh, in this constitution, uh, slavery was ingrained as part of it. So it's not as if these theorists were merely uh, producing uh, theories without having real political ramifications. In this case, he directly was responsible for a document entrenching slavery as a foundation of the constitutionalist order in the new world. But just just a quick point here, which is not a, a completely serious one, but just think about what political philosophers today would give to be able to author a constitution of a state. That would be a great bit of uh, impact <laughs> that they could could register with their academic, uh, with, with their department. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 I think that's one of the good bits of, of the book that he shows that the, that there is an explanation of, of why in the historical context in which Locke is writing, it's not completely ridiculous that he is, he, that the author of the two treaties on government is the same person who's the author of a, of a slave state's constitution. And I think one thing that becomes illustrated over the course of the book quite repeatedly is the way that those who belong to the to the community of the free, whether that is uh, the American colonists in the late 18th century, or for that matter, the the American South self conception of itself uh, in the in the 19th century, that those who belonged, or indeed you know Britain as opposed to those living in the colonies, though the people who belong to the community of free see themselves as free and guard it all the more jealously uh, because they're members of a privileged group who are allowed to be free. That who aren't under political domination. So if you're a property owner, you are you very jealously guard that freedom because you're part of a of a limited group. You know the freedom is one which is premised on the exclusion of those from that community of free people. Uh, so there is a great book which really illustrates how this affects the writing of history by a Haitian uh, anthropologist called Silencing the Past which is uh, and the sub- subject of Haiti and the Haitian Revolution is something we'll return to later in this podcast because it plays a central role in this book in that the people who are inconvenient to this narrative, in this case, the dominated and the slaves, the Indians, the people colonized, the people wiped out sometimes from existence are also wiped out of the historical record to an extent. Even if they appear, they appear as passive agents, not passive subjects, not drivers of history. In the sense, the freedom of the colonists gets uh, premised as a essential part of the historical narrative rather than the domination of the slaves. And to an extent, from classic works, not just of this period, but also in the sort of last 50 years or even more recently of intellectual history, the disappearance of domination and the real role that domination played in all these narratives gets erased from the story. And in that sense, the writing of history itself and the writing of this liberal history is part of the continuing tradition of rephrasing these relations of domination, which is sort of Michel Ralph Trio's point. So in that case, I think one of the interesting things this book does is to not only center the actual historical record in terms of uh, the relations between liberalism and slavery, but to show how this provided a sort of analytic through which they viewed the world upon in this writing that creates a sort of worldview that completely just 
which, which puts the domination and relations of domination at the forefront of how these people saw the world. But it's, it's even stronger. I, 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 sure I was going to agree with that. Oh, okay. I was going to agree. So, Phil, why don't you say your disagreement? Then dialectically, I can unite the two and and, and synthesize the points. <laughs> okay. I mean, my my disagreement, I suppose, is the portrayal of the common kind of, if you want to call it, kind of a common uh, popular historiography um, or a common conception of what the history of uh, the colonial revolutions, the American in particular, stands for today. I think it's much darker um, and much less, um, you know, there is nothing, I mean, uh, you know, there still might be kind of a patriotic strain in certain circles, but at least I think there's a strong popular, and certainly in terms of what's taught in universities, is that it's, um, you know, a bunch of Nazis basically arrive in the new world, they give blankets infested with smallpox to the Indians, they set up death camps for the Indians, and they try and kill as many of them as possible, and it's nothing but genocide and horror and slavery. And I think uh, Lesur do. So, I mean, I think, you know, I don't think there's. Um, a th it's a Howard, you know, like it's a dark kind of Howard's in version of history. I think that has a deep kind of popular roots in contemporary imagination about the origin of the, of the US and kind of Western civilization in the Americas. Where I think Lesurdo, you know, so Lesurdo is. I mean, he's. I wouldn't assimilate him to that exactly because I think it's too erudite for that. And he has, what's interesting about it, I suppose, is that he has very clear um, attention to the contradictions, the way in which the contradictions within liberalism work themselves out in the tensions between the Brits and the Americans. So something that's very interesting is how he talks about how the, um, the British shame, you know, they shame the claims for liberty from the American colonists by drawing attention to the slaves, whereas the American colonists shame the British claim to be more liberal by drawing attention to Ireland, by drawing attention to the British Empire in India, and particularly to the treatment of um, British workers, even, you know, even in this kind of early, late 18th century period, and how through this kind of um, dialectic of delegitimization, they end up um, pushing themselves into areas that they didn't think to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I, w I, w I wasn't meaning to uh, make as if Lesotho fits into Howard Zinn. And, and as my point is, this is uh, Zinn's sort of style of uh, popular social history is relatively recent. Uh, I was referring more to intellectual history, which is not really what Zinn is doing, and how I'm thinking of uh, sort of many of the mainstream narratives in intellectual history specifically, but that's sort of a pedantic behind the point. But the point is more that uh, what Lesotho is doing is offering a philosophical history rather than the sort of social history that you get from the Zen school. Uh, yeah, no, I think and, that's fair. And also it depends where you are, because for instance in Brazil, which is a slave society, you wouldn't get that narrative so much. It's very limited into certain places in the US and to an extent the UK. Uh, that's sort of the impact of those sort of popular histories, especially in somewhere like France. It's, you don't get much of that sort of history of French slavery, I think. I think what what I took from from from, from this and this particularly the point that <clears throat> you're just making, Ben, is that the it's almost that the the it's not it's not an accidental blind spot the you know the colonies and and slavery that actually it then goes on. I think the sort of sort of traces this how it goes on to distort all of the all of subsequent liberal thought and it's and it partially explains as as Phil mentioned earlier 
that ne- the necessity within liberal thought of the of the strict binary between public and private of that strict as as Lasordo talks about profane and sacred that you basically have this geographical this kind of uh, in the in world of in the world of philosophy splitting between between the things that you basically can cannot think about and are not human and and are not really central and metropolitan and and the other I mean or I don't know if I necessarily want to use the other with a capital O because he he doesn't but you know what I'm you know what I'm driving at here I'm assuming. Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, and this is the thing about, um, also to refer to the thing that Phil has just said about that we can almost reconstruct this argument as, you know, the colonists, um, we can defend the colonists' demands for political liberty and for the right to self-government as against uh, the British monarchy. Uh, well, at the same time, we might um, take up the claims made by British liberals like Adam Smith, um, like Mill, um, which were sometimes often in defense of despotism, as a way of guaranteeing liberty. So I, one thing which we might uh, might be worth discussing is the ways in which Adam Smith, for example, defended despotism as a way because it, only despotism could really abolish slavery. If you have democracy, you have a democracy of property owners who will only reinforce slavery. So really, you need despotism to get rid of to get rid of slavery. That's quite an interesting he was the, uh, proposition. He was the original um, kind of centrist, willing to abandon democracy. <laughs> well, yeah. as, li- as, as listeners might might uh, get get that reference to a previous ABB. And I think episode. we're going to come on to discuss that. I think probably a little bit more explicitly at the end of this. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of maybe it's worth talking about Haiti and the role of Haiti in the book. Uh, in and again, this is a very recent intellectual development. It's really the last 30, 40 years, following people like C.L.R. James, Michelle Raft Trio, who I mentioned earlier, and. Uh, theorists such as Peter Hallworld, who really make the argument that uh, the Haitian Revolution is the culmination of universalist enlightenment values, in that while the American Revolution granted political liberties and the French Revolution went further than that, they both stopped short of uh, granting absolute universal recognition of a free man or a free human being based on some sort of universal shared citizenship until the Haitian Revolution happens in the case of the French Revolution, which takes the Jacobin ideas of radicalism and takes them to a logical conclusion in uh, liberating slaves and creating a idea of citizenship which is universal, even if this involved uh, butchering the colonialists and the slave owners. And in this, this the Haitian Revolution figures as a sort of like the culmination of liberal ideas of egalitarianness taken through radicalism throughout this book as something that haunts the sort of imagination or the politics of uh, liberalism. And I think the it's quite interesting that the Haitian Revolution and uh, place has become now in uh, critical theory and uh, intellectual and sort of Atlantic history a founding culmination, almost an orthodoxy, as the culmination of the of Enlightenment values. Well, it's 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 beyond liberalism, isn't it? I mean, I, I um, part of my summer reading after after a cycling accident was to reread Black Jacobins, and if, if readers haven't, if listeners haven't haven't read that, it's obviously um, I thought it was a very gripping read. But I think that shows the contradictions. It, it shows how it actually played out, where the relationship to France of of, of the Haitian slaves was 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 very complex and, and politicized in various in various different ways, but the ultimate success or, or failure of, of the revolution was about how it positioned itself in terms of these universal values and tried to say well actually the french state is um is an imperfect expression of these universal values 
So with that in mind, uh, let's return to the subject of the relation between domination of the state and domination within civil society. In many respects, it's the domination with civil society, which is where slave relations and relations of domination over workers persist within liberalism. But as you pointed towards earlier, the methods needed to break domination within civil society is not through rational argumentation. It requires some sort of relations of power. Things have to change through an exercise of power, not just an exercise of goodwill and rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is what, um, you know, what Lacerdo uses these terms, but they're not his, but, you know, political liberalism versus economic liberalism, where an economic liberalism wants freedom to be left alone by the state uh, and to get on with your own affairs, whereas a political liberalism wants everyone to have a say within the creation of the rules under which we live, the laws under which we live. Um, or, you know, in, in like I say of Berlin's terms, you know, a conception of positive conception of liberty versus a negative conception of liberty. Um, what's interesting is that, like, as we referred to before, there are some liberals who, uh, like Adam Smith, actually, who will take a sort of um, seemingly contradictory position where they'll defend despotism because only despotism can rid society of slavery. If you let people self-rule and you have a you have a government of property owners, they'll um, institute and maintain slavery. I think there's a good quote from that where, um, you know, of Smith, every law is made by their masters who will never pass anything prejudicial to themselves. Um, therefore, the freedom of the free was the cause of great oppression for the slaves. That's like Smith being quite clear in his conception that democracy is like is very tightly implicated um, in the maintenance of slavery. I mean, in some respects, uh, and I think uh, maybe Phil, you can come in here because you know, I, I think more about the subject than I do, is that the American Civil War and the role of Lincoln taking profoundly illiberal methods to win the war uh, to uh, free the slaves is a perhaps an example of this sort of relation. Yeah, I think that's... Um it's when we say when Adam Smith says despotism, he means um, you know I mean this is how I read it anyway. He means uh, the liberal use of state power to forcefully yeah. drive through um, necessary reforms in order to lead to emancipation, and that is um, certainly that was the accusation that was made against um, Lincoln by his opponents, right? That he's uh, it's a despotic and arbitrary power. The emergency powers ruling by decree, um, the executive kind of uh, usurping representation during the conduct of the civil war, and that this is, was a um, that it was a despotic power. Um, so I mean, I think you know, is uh, that if that's the kind of um, force that was necessary in uh, the U.S. Civil War in order to um, eliminate slavery from U.S. society. I think you see this sort of example in uh, later cases too. And for instance, that was the argument made to defend uh, sort of states' rights against uh, the civil rights movement in terms of Jim Crow racism, or even in apartheid South Africa, that uh, democracy was fundamentally alien and it would be, and it was the democracy of whites would be intruded upon if you were to extend suffrage. So the other element of that, and I think it's worth drawing out as well, is the incapacity, which is the intellectual and moral capacity of the dominated to reach the state of civilization necessary to be part of the political community and to enjoy the same rights. And the good thing, one thing I think which is, you know, is an important um, point that Lacerda makes as well, is that this the division between the free and the unfree also requires damage to the rights of the free, 
Mm, yeah. Um, and most kind of pointedly and obviously in um, laws against mis racial miscegenation in um, slave societies, which you know very pro which proliferate. Um, Record, you know, uh, kind of the demand that um, slaves that escape, which was enforced all across the Union, that they had to be returned to um, the slave states, uh, the bans on certain kinds of freedom of speech in favor of abolitionism, the restrictions on the activities of certain kinds of um, churches and Christian movements who tried to emancipate abolitionist Christian movements. So that was a, it's an important part of his narrative. And one also that's worth drawing attention to is that the maintenance of freedom requires unfreedom internal to the community of the free not just the oppression of the slaves i think this is a really yeah a, a really well-made point and one that kind of requires underlining in a sense that lucerto makes that 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 sort of point repeatedly that liberalism in its um in its history or this counter history he's tracing it it kind of it's, it's centered on this idea of a certain idea of freedom but it fails on its own terms because it does require all of these restrictions to even the community of the free, which in and of itself is extremely exclusionary. And that really hit, hit home for me and made me think, well, there's, you know, it's, it's so important just to make this basic point that this is completely integral to the history of liberalism. It's not, it's not a, it's not periphery, it's not a per on the periphery, it's not accidental. It, it's completely um, part and parcel of, of the central narrative of, of the history of liberalism. I think, I mean, for instance, that's a very interesting point, and it extends beyond mm. simply the legacy of slavery. It's no coincidence the hardest areas, for instance, the United States, for workers to organize in unions were the same areas as Jim Crow was put in, because the same sort of attitudes towards mobilization of slaves were employed to mobilization of workers. It's also the same sort of rhetoric and rights extend. It's not as though the legacy of slavery simply went away after it ended. It's very clear in slave societies like the United States or Brazil that these relations of domination persist throughout different levels of civil society even after the end of slavery. And I think uh, perhaps with that in mind, we should turn to the subject of what lessons or what things did we take from this book for describing a more recent history, the 20th century, and some of the questions our podcast has been dealing with from knobs, neoliberal uh, just was it neoliberal order? Just, <laughs> you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna have to do that again. But neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. Okay, knobs. Neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. Two. Uh, some of the more authoritarian expressions of liberalism in defense of the EU or the Democratic Party that we have seen in recent years. Well, I, mean, I guess one place to start, uh, which is something that we discussed more towards the beginning of this episode, was the spatial division of the community of the free, of sacred and profane space, that you have this space where nice liberalism can happen, and then you've got the dark areas over there where uh, more naked forms of domination are exercised. Um, and, you know, at, at the time in the kind of 17th, 18th, 19th century, it was said that the air was too pure for Negro slaves in, in Britain. So Britain can live under this illusion that it is free, but at the same time, um, there's a hell of a lot of unfreedom going on elsewhere, which in many ways sustains that freedom. And we can think of that in many ways. I mean, you mentioned the EU already. I think one contemporary argument that one often finds is the defense of free movement within the EU is always premised on exclusion, on the creation of a fortress Europe and, you know, internment camps and whatever in North Africa, which you have today. Maybe that's a little bit too on the nose the way I've put that. But, you know, there is a, a certain um, 
a, a certain um, analogous relationship there between a creation of a sort of sacred space where you're allowed to be free, but it's premised on exclusion from the outside. I've got another point that we were talking about, Alex and I, before the show, and I'd really like to hear George and Phil's thoughts on this, is that Alex was telling me that in his view, and and I think this also features how, in our previous episode, how the center-right also is part of the sort of breakdown syndrome, is that to an extent, both conservatives and liberals today, in terms of the way they describe themselves, are both different elements of the liberal tradition. They both accept the same premises about the way society should be organized, the role of the market. Uh, neoliberals may be different to the extent to sort of some liberals who believe that there should be safe spaces immune from the market. But in essence, that the both the right, the centre-right and the centre-left, with some maybe some exceptions in the far-right, both are the inheritors of the liberal tradition. I think that's a good point. I think that the, the centre-left, though, or at least the, the people who self-consciously identify themselves as liberals, probably take on this mantle of which liberalism has has had historically of of progress and of of historical um i guess incremental change towards towards improvement whereas obviously conservatives are much more skeptical of this so i think the and that's one of the things this book points out that the even the um the most the, the the classic thinkers within this tradition have have been subjected to these systematic and characteristic exclusions which obviously only a socialist critique which is which is more properly universal can can avoid i would say i mean i think the uh, there is what one thing that's striking i suppose is uh, from mm. the book is there is no strong political claim for freedom today i don't think there's no kind of strong claim that's made so i mean the you do get the replication of the kind of sacred and profane um, spatial spatialization of political ideas. I mean, that still occurs. And I certainly think there are many people who don't think of themselves as liberals, but who would conform to the idea that change for the better can only be slow and incremental, modest and moderate and in keeping with you know the demands of property effectively. And that I think many people who would think of themselves on the left would nonetheless subscribe to. Um, so I'm not convinced. I mean, you know, I'm not convinced of that of the picture. But also, I think there are some things which simply um, stand out as being very different in terms of a historical depiction of liberalism compared to liberalism today, which is very unselfconscious. It's not aware of itself. Insofar as it is liberal, I don't think it's aware of itself as liberal. Um, and it's very different from the liberalism of the past even then. There is nobody who kind of claims, I mean, you know, libertarians notwithstanding, but even that's pretty phony in a way. Um, nobody kind of firmly stands behind the banner of freedom, claiming the idea of freedom for their own. So with that in mind, is there anything particularly in the book that struck you out as wrong or weakness in the argument or something that really you were not satisfied with or left you with more questions that it answered? There are two, I'd say there are two primary limitations, um, or at least, you know, things which are left open to uh, question. The first one, I think, is um, is the fact that it's a counter history, like I say. So, I mean, it's a very deliberate, self-conscious selection of, um, of uh, ideas that are kind of taken out of a huge variety of thinkers across a cross-section of a long historical period and then put together in one place to show as kind of a consistent thread. And that's a, you know, it's a very useful exercise 
but also it risks um, giving a you know self-consciously distorted picture, and also at times you know as a result of kind of making these um, rapid connections across different periods and different thinkers, he also ends up I think um, straying into uh, anachronism and making you know inferences which I think are crude and illegitimate. It's occasional. You know. so, what do you but think of your instance? So, you know, he'll talk about kind of workhouses as concentration camps, and he talks about the um, slaveholding idea of liberalism as a master race democracy. And that strikes me as, um, you know, that strikes me as anachronistic. I mean, I don't think it's useful to think about what's at issue in slaveholding, freedom in slaveholding society in respect of um, 20th century ideas of uh, fascist and reactionary ideas of racial science. You know, that's a bit crude. But, it, you know, that's in my, I mean, it's not so much an important point. The other thing I'd say is, I suppose, is um, which vantage point is the book written from? I mean, what's the viewpoint from which it's written? Because, you know, you can do a, you can do a counter history of anything. Right, you know, and whether or not it's a good counter history or whether or not it's a useful exercise, I suppose you can only decide on at the end. But the count, this counter history could be done of anything, you know, it could be done, certainly could be done of Marxism. I mean, if the end point is to say, you know, that the liberals are sitting on tops of piles of skulls, who are they to lecture us about freedom or to claim these kinds of grand traditions for themselves? Is there anybody who's not sitting on tops of piles of skulls who can claim that kind of moral high ground? I'm not mm. sure there is, right? Libertarian. So, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I. I'm not. Sure, I think that's a little bit unfair. Or I think. I guess the point for me was more the conceptual shifts and the way that he traces those, like one at one step remove how how the you know the, the conceptual structure of liberalism requires these exclusions has due to the material circumstances of its birth and its development required this parceling off of these of these certain groups of people which then led to the that's why it was so important to have this sacred profane public private these 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 key divisions within liberalism and so i think it is i think it is you know it's, it's not representative of the whole of liberalism which is the, you know a, a massive chunk of political thought from the from the 17th century onwards as as Lesordo kind of doesn't doesn't really deal with that i think it's more the, the the big picture questions how do you how do you then situate liberalism as as this this movement which has has been the most successful political ideology in 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 the modern world as as michael freedom would say and i think that's absolutely correct how do you try and get under some of the, the claims that it characteristically makes to to reveal the things that it's it's required to exclude I mean, and I guess that the question is, yeah, is he saying something more than, well, you know, liberalism, it's great in theory, but it doesn't work in practice as in the way that it's always thrown at Marxism. Um, and I think it remains ambiguous over the course of the book, whether he's saying that this is that the central paradox of liberalism, of freedom and unfreedom is something which is insurmountable and liberalism should be gone beyond or whether it's something that can be at least in principle, resolved from within liberalism, whether these things can, whether the, the forms, the new forms of hierarchy that liberalism creates, the forms of exclusion that it creates, um, the new forms of domination which it throws up, whether those are things which can be ironed out from within liberalism by just making liberalism be true to itself, or whether liberalism is doomed from the start because of this unique twin birth of liberalism and slavery. I, I think 
the uh, I mean, I think part of what the, that question really poses is something we've been talking about in the show is the difficulties of imagining a politics outside of liberalism, mm. in the sense that his argument, and I think it's implicit, it's not just implicit, it's explicit in the book, that there exists this tradition outside of liberalism called radicalism, which he draws a genealogy between Jacobinism and uh, I guess the Marxist tradition, which is always pushed to not only universalize these ideals, but go beyond the limitations of this framework. And I, I'm knowing Lusodo's other work explicitly, his attack on revisionism in the war and revolution, for instance, or his recent uh, work on uh, Western Marxism, which he attacks as the talking shop Marxist who never got their hands dirty running anything is that uh, there exists this counter-tradition that goes beyond and is outside the liberal tradition. But, and if Lesotho, I think, really wants to make the claim, and I think this is part of his legacy and uh, his intellectual legacy, even if one is uh, not really a fan of his sort of relation to, I guess, Stalinism or uh, the Soviet Union and that Marxist-Leninism, is that uh, there exists a way of thinking outside of liberalism which has always pushed the great victories of liberalism are in fact pushed from the radical tradition, from this, this political tradition, which can truly claim ownership over these. And he wants to really make the claim that it's very possible to imagine not only a uh, politics, but a political history outside of liberalism. I think that's absolutely crucial. And, and it reminds me of a, of, of a book, um, of, of a couple of books recently that I've read, one, one Forging Democracy, which is a, a kind of a, a macro account of how socialist and, and class struggles led to some of the achievements later claimed by liberalism but also another one called Lenin Lives by some obscure scribbler which <laughs> actually really illustrates the point that the, 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 the dynamism often claimed by liberalism is actually a consequence of this radicalism or, or communism or this this threat of, of, a, of a really um, more more synthesized freedom which which liberalism then has to respond to in order to in order to to, uh, to continue to claim this mantle of freedom and that's that's not a facetious point i think that's absolutely um comes out of, of lasordo's book that that there's that what what drags particularly in, in later years liberalism towards freedom is not necessarily an internal dynamic it's, it's an external one absolutely i think there's and we can maybe to make a real sort of dialectical point while liberalism yes. was more <laughs> yes while liberalism was most realized by the work by the activities, um, by the practice of socialists and radicals. At the same time, it's probably important from within the camp of radicalism and socialism to remember those fundamental claims of freedom and that the fundamental mission is to realize liberalism because that can also be forgotten in this, um, in a sort of spontaneous anti-liberalism that you get sometimes on the left, which is to forget about the foundational calls for, for freedom. Yeah, I mean, I guess like uh, a lot of the left is really still working itself through the post-post-structuralist period in the sense that uh, it's become very uncool in certain circles, although I think it's getting its cool back with the sort of Corbyn and uh, Sanders projects in the UK and US at least to uh, be a universalist, to claim universal foundations. It's difference, fragmentation, the, in the impossibility of understanding the other and really the impossibility of thinking outside of language and these limitations for us, which has become really the static critique of liberalism. Lesotho's is not that critique. He goes much deeper. I mean, for a while, like Foucault, the sort of critique of liberalism as uh, in terms of these sort of 
of the impossibility of language, of the impossibility of reconciliation of difference as the way it hasn't been able to realize these universal values is completely the opposite of what Lesotho is doing. And I think if one is trapped in that framework, it really becomes impossible to uh, imagine a politics outside of victimhood and suffering. Well, this is mm. a point that I was about to make, actually, which is that Lesotho poses an interesting question throughout the book. Um, to liberalism. He asks liberalism, who is the proper subject of freedom? And liberals, liberalism comes up with these un- unsatisfying answers. It's, you know, it's white people, it's property owners, it's only people within a, within a certain space. Um, and so, you know, the obvious answer is it must be universalized. You know, the, there must be a universal subject of freedom. And if we think about kind of the contemporary kind of political and cultural dynamics today, who are who are the permitted subjects who are allowed to, to speak, right? Who's allowed to speak? You either have to be the universal humanitarian victim, you know, kind of a genocide victim or whoever, the absolute, um, completely abject victim. Yeah. Um, who's allowed to say, stop killing me. Or you can be the particularized victim, which is I, me, have been personally harmed or my identity group has been harmed. So a black person may only speak for black people. Disabled people may only speak for fellow disabled people. Um, but what's lost in that is that you don't have the, you know, kind of the particular universal subject. That is to say that the transport worker might stand in, stand in for all workers. So that kind of, you know, that, that aspect of particularism and universalism gets lost. You've only got these very particularized victims who are allowed to speak. Well, then you have the sort of inversion of that, because I agree with that, but I think there's one exception to that rule. And we discussed it last week in our Nobs episode, which is the embattled centrist pundit who can claim the oppression of whoever's convenient to make their point. So, yeah, uh, Alex, how could you forget that person? I mean, so the, I, the key point for the centrist pundit is the platform and the cultural capital to use other people's uh, experience of victimhood to stand in and make their point. <laughs> Um, so I actually just that ref- reference of Foucault made made me kind of um, think a little bit whether this whether this isn't isn't useful to compare what Lacerda is trying to do with what Foucault's trying to do, and it's it's this this in my to my mind at least this sort of counter history is is so much more generative and about twenty times as useful and interesting and readable than compared to what Foucault tries to do, which is basically undermine the liberal subject and basically say that liberalism was never possible and it seems like actually that well liberalism has been possible it has been successful and actually what Lacerdo shows is that there is there are um, in things which are not complete about it but it's not the same as Foucault's project which is entirely and you you, you see this when you speak to Foucauldians if you if you absolutely have to I have um, to all the time as an academic oh uh, well yeah I mean you, you see that basically they're like well liberalism has always been false but where, where does that where does that get you that kind of claim it doesn't really it just seems to me pretty useless because it has actually developed and it has has been successful to a greater or lesser extent so trying to undermine the the, the conceptual basis rather than trace how it developed is is um that's a classic Foucauldian project but it seems to me a little bit useless i mean there's the one other thing about that is that when you speak about resistance always becomes sort of unconscious micro resistance of bodies rather than conscious political projects and uh project like this with its emphasis on the Haitian Revolution refers to the agency of the oppressed through grand political events to enter the stage of history and change things based on universal principles rather than the sort of unconscious desires of the oppressed forming new types of resistance 
And I think uh, that's an emphasis on the importance of politics. And if anything, and um, perhaps this is a transition to uh, the end of the episode, but this, what this book makes a claim, and as we've mentioned before, it's imagining that there is a politics beyond liberalism that might be able to actualize these sort of universal ideas of human emancipation. All right, that's all we've got time for. We really hope you enjoyed this discussion. It's actually the first time we do this sort of thing to discuss a work in depth like this. So if you got something out of it, that's really great, and we'd like to hear from you. Likewise, if you didn't, please get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever. We're back with more soon, examinations of concrete national politics of countries around the world. As societies face the end of the neoliberal order, but with nothing yet to replace it, and discussions of the ideas and culture taking shape at the end of the end of history. Catch you later. Bye-bye.